right. Good morning, church. Morning. Uh, for those of you joining us online and for those of you who are here, happy 4th of July. And thank you. And to you. I received that as well. Thank you for wishing me a 4th of July. Appreciate that. Glad you're here. If you're a guest or a visitor, we're so glad you're here in this room. Uh, a couple uh, housekeeping things. We just want to always make sure uh, we want you to feel at home. So if at any time you want to go grab some more coffee or tea or something else to eat, you want to go sit on the couch in the lobby, that's absolutely fine. You're not going to be bothering any of us. We want you to feel at home. That's very, very important to us. I, I, I'm not like Tim. I don't have an incredible 4th of July shirt. Tim, would you, uh, in, in risk of embarrassing you, uh, you just got back from a trip to Mexico on vacation. So I, I you deserve it. Uh, would you please stand up? Look at this shirt. Is that amazing? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I don't have anything like that, so I got parrots on my shirt. Uh, that's about as red, white, and blue as I can possibly get, but might need to come borrow that shirt. Uh, it is pretty fun. Uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but it is pretty fun to watch some of you coming back. You're tan, you're smiling, you're happy. It means you've been on vacation for the first time in a year and a half, which is super cool. Uh, our vacation today is down to Colorado Springs to so spend time with family, light off a ton of fireworks. We had to do that because Bill and Bonnie Lou are like two streets away from us, and every time we light off fireworks, we, we put their dogs uh, into like... Uh, temptation of an aneurysm, and so we have to like leave the city to do it. Anyways, we're gonna go down there and do that. Any of you guys do anything fun? Raise your hand. Awesome. The fun people aren't here. So uh, those of you who are are well, you're probably not even watching if you're a fun person. So uh, awesome. So that's the people we have today. That's great. All right. Well, hopefully you eat. Hopefully you eat well. Uh, if you're not going to have fun. We have a ton of babies around here. You realize what happens during COVID? Uh, it is super, super cool to see all these babies. Make sure you like network, whatever you do networking-wise when you have babies, but do that. There's a lot of new people. All right, so if you have your Bibles, please open them up. Please, please, please open them up. If you don't have a Bible, there are so many in our seats in front of you. You can grab one of those. You can turn it on on your phone or your tablet or whatever. Or if you're like several people in this room, if you have all of Psalm 19 memorized, then just recall that. Uh, but you can open up. Last week, we started a brand new teaching series called The Word of God. Alex alluded to that. And last week, we talked about the inspiration behind the Word of God. And that's a big, big deal because if the Word of God is inspired by anything other than God, then there's the potential for error, which is where we're going to kind of go this morning. So we talked about the inspiration of the Word of God. If you missed last week's message, you can go catch up on that. And we looked at what does it mean that it's inspired and how does that affect you and me? And today I want to ask you a very simple question, and I want you to answer it honestly, not out loud, just in the depths of your heart. Do you believe the Bible is true? I just want you to think about that for a moment. Think about what you know to be true. I don't know if you thought about this when you sat down in your chair to this morning, if it was going to hold you. Any of you weird like that? And you wonder, man, if I sit, is this thing going to really hold me? Or did you just trust it? You trusted it to be true. So you sat down without thinking of it. I wonder how many of you actually believe that the Bible is true. What we're going to do is we're going to read uh, an excerpt out of Psalm 19 uh, as we jump in this morning. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We read and we stand out of reverence, out of awe for what this book contains. These are not stagnant words that are dead on paper. They're, they're not ancient words that have no meaning. They are life-giving. They're life-freeing, and, uh, and they give inspiration even as we read. And so we're just going to read 7 through 14. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true, 
Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest of gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all of the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. Verse 14, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. So on Wednesday, as I was preparing for this, I, uh, and Alex and I joke about this all the time, I had way too much content for this morning. Uh, we're, we're, we're beginning uh, in this particular part of the series, we're looking at the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. And I had about 20 pages, and I couldn't possibly get rid of anything, and so I've decided to split it into two parts uh, one for this morning and one for next week. And what we're going to do is we're, we're going to look at the what, and then we're going to look at the so what next week. Is that okay with you guys? So we're going to look at the what this morning. So if you leave here asking yourself, so what, uh, come back next week, and, and we'll be able to answer that. So first things first, the what. Now, if, if you were here last week, we really pushed. This is really not a series to just sit back Listen, nod your head, get in your car, and drive away. This is a series that is very, very intentionally created for you to interact with it. That means to be able to take notes, to highlight things, to underline, to write question marks, to, to put reference verses, because we're going to jump all the way around. I also want to give you a, a little bit of heads up right now. It's going to be a little heady at some various parts. I just want you to hang with me as we navigate those, because here's my desire. I don't want to just spoon feed you milk. I don't want to just make it easy. I don't want it to make sure that it's just all fluff and Jesus holding a lamb. I, we are digging into why is the word of God the word of God? And in order to get there, there's some higher level aspects of the word of God for the mature follower of Jesus, according to our mission statement, is we want you to be a mature follower of Jesus. And so we're going to dive into some deeper areas. A great way to handle that is just do a quick note on your phone or a quick note in your Bible and, and revisit that later. So first things first, what's the what? If inspired... The Word of God, right? We talked about this last week. If it's inspired, and if it really means God breathed, anybody remember the passage we looked at last week? It's in 2 Timothy. Awesome. 2 Timothy 3.16, and that is that all of Scripture is, is God breathed, is without their error, and therefore can be trusted completely. If that's the case, then we need to understand the why kind of behind it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to erect a building. We're going to kind of start from the top down to the bottom to the foundation, and then we're going to reverse it. We're going to go from the foundation up so that you have a holistic idea of why this is important for you. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 is a real good verse to kind of jot down. It tells us that since God can't lie, it's not in his character, it's not in his being, it's not in his makeup. He, he literally can't do it. You and I can lie. Some of you are really gifted. Uh, we, he can't do it. He can't do it all. Even if he wanted to, he cannot lie. And therefore, he would cease to be God if he breathed out, again, thinking about 2 Timothy 3.16, he would cease to be God if he were to breathe out anything that's a lie or anything that is deceitful, or anything that is half-truth, he would fail to be God. This is extremely important because, remember, we talked about last week, cards on the table. Our goal at the end of this series is you want to read your Bible more. That's where we're headed for this. So if God breathes out errors and contradictions, even in the smallest part, he would fail to be God. So long as we give inspiration its real meaning, again, this is review from last week, we won't find it hard to understand the infallibleness 
and the inerrancy of Scripture. We see this in Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. Those are our two very specifics. If, if, if you want to highlight these two verses and maybe draw an arrow that talks about what we're talking about today, grab one and two, talking about the inspiration behind it. This is what we're looking at this morning. And these two verses are essentially our base camp to where we can then spread out from there to understand the infallibleness and the inerrancy of Scripture. We all on the same page so far? Okay. Now, inerrant means without error. Inerrant is without error. Infallible means incapable of an error. Now, it's much more than that. But I only have 40 minutes, okay? We could go deep, 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 deep into this. We could nerd out on this. We could stretch it apart. We could really give different things. In its, in its essence, in its most simple form, when someone talks about the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of Scripture, this is what they are referring to, okay? Some of you, this might be new. Some of this, this might be uh, review. But note as we get going, just out of the gate, here's what I want to make sure we're taking note of. There is a significant difference between error and difficulty. You understand what I'm going with this? Scripture can be difficult, and I would venture to say it is difficult. That's different than there's errors. And each generation, each culture, each different part of the world will have difficulty with various parts of Scripture, where someone in uh, uh, Nazi Germany might have a difficulty at that time with part of Scripture. Here in America, we don't. Or today, here in America, our culture, we might struggle, we might have difficulty with aspects of, of Scripture where you go to another part of the world and they're not struggling with that. That is okay. That does not mean there's an error. That does not mean there's an error in Scripture. We can have difficulty with Scripture. But as Christ followers, we believe that the Scriptures are completely without error and more than that, they're not capable of an error. And we're going to explain why. Because here's what some people would like to do. Some people want to segment and go, well, I'm a biblical scholar. I don't really like the theology. Just let me study my Bible. And then others will go, well, I just love theology. Don't come at me with the biblical scholar. I, both camps are completely wrong. Because you have to meet in the middle of biblical scholarness and theology to really grasp if you want, again, this is not a salvation issue, if you want to continue your steps in becoming a mature follower of Jesus Christ. You with me? So that is incredibly important. So two words are sometimes used to explain the extent of biblical inerrancy. And there's two words here. You can write them down. Plenary and verbal. Okay, plenary and verbal. These are important because this is going to shape our foundation of where we're heading. Okay, plenary comes from the Latin plenus, which means full. Okay, full. And it refers to the fact that the whole of Scripture in every single part is God given. In other words, if you read the Scriptures and you go, man, that, that, that this verse is unbelievable. This is definitely from God. Numbers, the, the cubits, and all those measurements, that is not from God because that is so incredibly boring. No, that's not true. Every single word, every single aspect of the original scriptures is breathed from God. Now, verbal, this is what's important. Verbal comes from the Latin term verbum, which means word. And this emphasizes that even the words are of Scripture are God-given. In other words, it's not just the heart behind it. You know, some people will say, well, I believe in the Scriptures. Man, God's heart is all over the Scriptures. But there's some words and there's some phrases and there's things I don't necessarily agree with, but I give God the benefit of the doubt. That's bad theology. That's actually bad biblical scholarness. Because verbal will say every single word in the scriptures are God-given. And together, now this is where the beauty comes, together, plenary and verbal inspiration means the Bible is God-given and therefore is without error. Every single 
part of it. The doctrine, the history, the geography, the dates, the names, every single word. Again, that doesn't mean there won't be difficulty because of that. And as Christ followers, it is really important that we're okay with difficultness. We're okay with that's not easy to read. On a regular basis, I'm just, full disclosure to you, on a regular basis, I'm disturbed by something I read in Scripture, and I have to wrestle with it. And I always end with, you're God, I'm not. And then I always have to take my worldview, my view of culture, my convictions, my morals, my ethics, and hold it up against the backdrop of Scripture and go, not me, but you. Who does that sound like? It's Jesus. And that's our task as we dive into the Scriptures day in and day out. So that's plenary and that is verbal. And when we talk about inerrancy, we refer to the original writings of the scriptures, okay? We're not gonna get too deep into this. This is not an original writing of scripture, okay? You are not holding, although if you are, I'd like to meet you, you are not holding an original writing of scripture. In other words, one of Paul's uh, henchmen didn't pen what you're holding, right? Uh, the, the feather pen and the ink didn't write that. We, in fact, we don't have any of the original autographs, as they're called. Uh, the autographs are the original writings, but we do have duplicates after duplicate after duplicate after duplicate of those original writings. And there are extremely small differences in the writings, in the duplicates of those autographs that have been handed down. But in reality, they are amazingly similar. Again, we're not getting too deep into the woods here with apologetics, but if you were to examine how the Bible has been duplicated to be passed down to you and I, it is the most authentic duplicate of a book ever known to the face of the earth. And we don't question any other books, but we will always question the Word of God. But the Word of God is the most accurate, penned down, translated uh, book, comp compilation that our world has ever known. But inerrancy means it is incorrect to claim that the Bible is only reasonably accurate. Maybe you've heard that from a family member. Maybe you've heard that from a friend. Maybe you've heard that from a pastor at some point. Well, it's reasonably effective. It's reasonably accurate. Here's the problem with that statement, with that mindset. That would leave us questioning everything that we read. Is this completely accurate or is this reasonably accurate? However small, however large the, the discrepancy was, it would leave us wondering. It would leave us in question. And the reality is there is no error. There is no error because God is the inspiration behind the word. And God is without error. And God doesn't have the ability to be an error. And therefore, the scriptures don't even have the possibility to be an error. Again, that doesn't mean there isn't difficulty. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about itself. This is where I'm just going to need you to buckle up and stick with me. Uh, we don't have possibly the time to unpack every verse, so you may need to just jot down a note or two. So first, let's look at the view from the Old Testament writers. The Old Testament writers, this is amazing. If you, if you decide to do a study on this, this will blow your mind. But the Old Testament writers saw their message that they received, the Torah, uh, the, the writings, they saw their message as God-breathed and therefore utterly reliable. 100% reliable in every single word. God promised Moses that he would eventually send another prophet. Who is that? 
It's always a great answer. Jesus, who would also speak God's word, just like Moses had done. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. It's going to be on your screens at home. It's going to be on the screen here. It'll be on the screen in the lobby for you folks. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything who commands him. I He's not going to go rogue. He's not going to go do whatever he wants. I'm going to get a new prophet from the Israelites, and I'm going to send him speaking, and he will only speak and do what I give him. That's Jesus. If there's anyone that would have a little bit of wiggle room to do what he wants on earth, it would be Jesus. But God says, no, 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 no. You'll only speak what I give you. Now, if that's Jesus, how much more for you and I? How much more for you and I does God want to speak through you to another? That's God's heart. Jeremiah was told it. Actually, let me pause just for a moment. It's 4th of July, and I was debating whether or not I was going to say this, but I do need to say this. A lot of times... People will poo-poo um, the United States of America on 4th of July. Uh, we live in a culture that it's very, very popular now to just throw shade on our country, uh, demonize it, say everything that's wrong with it, that yes, we were, we were founded on God-fearing individuals, but look at all the atrocities that they did, et cetera, et cetera. I'm kind of fed up with it. Uh, and here's why. Because if you look at the Old Testament, if you watch the Israelites... They were God's chosen people. How great were they? Anyone? I don't know. Let's say they slept with each other's family members. They created slavery. They worshiped golden calves. They doubted God at every turn. They shouted saying, put us back into slavery. This is awful. But they were God's chosen people. We are not a perfect nation. But we were founded and grounded in the, the laws of the scripture. By perfect individuals, heavens no. We aren't going to see that this side of glory. But we were started, we were founded as a nation on the principles of scripture. And that served us well. And we have gotten so far away from that. And so if you ever hear someone just ripping on the United States of America, just remind them of a little bit of truth. Okay, that's all I have to say about that. All right, now, Jeremiah was told at the beginning of the ministry, hey, Jeremiah, you're gonna speak for me. Try that on for size. God comes to you. Amy? You're gonna speak for God. Come on up here, speak for God. No, her heart's racing right now. It's not happening. Jeremiah is told right at the beginning, you are gonna speak for God. I don't even want to speak for Sandy, my bride. I'm fearful of that. I'm going to screw that up. Speak for God? Don't screw that up. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9, then the Lord reached out and he touched my mouth and he said, look, I've put my words into your mouth. Friends, do you know that God still does that today? through his word, he says, I'm going to touch your mouth so you can speak to your kids this way. I'm going to touch your mouth so that as you interact with those family members, possibly on a 4th of July that absolutely drive you nuts, I'm going to touch your mouth so that you can speak love and kindness to them. Or you can speak for yourself and let me know how that goes. But this is the heart of God. Let's review this. The Hebrew word for prophet means a spokesperson. And the prophet's message was on God's behalf, which you often read this. This is what the Lord says. Why? That was the prophet's way of going, don't shoot the messenger. This is what the Lord says. You don't like it? Take it up with him. But this is what the Lord says. And as a result, they frequently so identified themselves with God that they spoke 
as though God himself were actually speaking. In other words, they were so in tune with God's heart and God's person and and God speaking into their lives that they could, without pause, turn and speak for God. Let me ruffle some feathers here just for a moment. How many of you ever said, I got to pray about that? Anyone? Please. You know what? Sometimes you shouldn't have to pray about it. Sometimes you should already know God's heart. Someone comes to you and they're looking for hope. The darkness is all around them. You should turn to them and go, the scriptures say lightness breaks through the darkness. There's hope for you. You shouldn't have to pray about that. You know God's heart. Especially if you're grounded in the scriptures. And the scriptures are feeding you and they're giving you life. Then God says, why are you looking to me? Just do what's right. I've already imprinted those on your heart. Act on them. Isaiah chapter 5 reveals this in a pretty cool way. Again, jot Isaiah 5 down and go look at this later. In verses 1 and 2, the prophet speaks of God in the third person. This is, this is an example of why there isn't an error. It's there for a reason, because here's what happens. Verses 1 and 2, the prophet speaks of God in the third person, he. But in verses 3 through 6, Isaiah changes to speak in the first person, I. Why? Because Isaiah was speaking the very words of God as if it were God himself speaking. And these insights, friends, are all over the scriptures. They're all over the Old Testament where God is speaking, 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 and man and woman is speaking on behalf of God. It's, it's just super cool. Second point, the New Testament agrees with the Old Testament. There's no error here. Peter and John saw the words of David in Psalm 2. The New Testament writers, they knew their Bible. Make no mistake. And they saw the words of David in Psalm 2, not merely as an opinion about some king that is an ancient relative of Israel, but what? As a voice of God. They didn't attribute it to David. They attributed it to the God of all nations, to the God of all creation, to the God of mercy, to the God who raised Jesus from the dead. That was their perspective. They even introduced a quotation from that psalm in a prayer of God by saying in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit. How did he speak? By the Holy Spirit, not of self. You spoke long ago by the power of the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, why were their nations so angry? Why did they waste their time on futile plans? Where's the source of what is being spoken? God, who is perfect, who is without error. He's never late. You might be going through a difficult time. You might be going through some tension. God is never late to your needs. And he's without error. Similarly, Paul accepted Isaiah's words as God speaking to men in Acts chapter 28, verse 25. Look at what this says. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit was right. You ever have that moment in your life where you go, God was right, and we're almost surprised? Am I the only one? Like something happens, you go, man, God knew what he was doing. That was amazing. I'm so glad he didn't listen to me. I'm so glad he didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted him to answer it. I'm so glad he did it. This is it. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors. How did he say it to the ancestors? Through Isaiah the prophet. Friends, God is speaking to you right now. He's using me to do it. He's using your holy scriptures that you hold in your lap to do it. He's alive. His word is alive. His word is active. His word brings life and life change so that you don't just sit in who you are today. There's a better part of you to come. And you need to hold on to that truth. 
Here's what this means. The writers of the New Testament were so convinced that all of the words of Scripture especially the Old Testament, because that's what they had to work with, were the actual words of God that they even claimed Scripture says when the words were quoted came directly from God. In other words, saying Scripture says is in other words of saying God says. I read an article this week There's a, a prominent preacher, pastor of an enormous church that in order to break down walls and not create obstacles to the gospel with today's culture, he has stopped saying the phrase, the Bible says. He says it loosely, but he won't say that exact phrase because then someone wants to argue with Scripture. So he stops saying it altogether. I think that's a colossal mistake. I think that's caving to our culture. I think that's caving to what others may like or what they don't like. And here's, here's the deal, and you know this. People are never going to be happy. Have you figured that out? We are never going to get faster internet. We're never going to have the perfect uh, video download platform. We're never going to have the coolest watch or the best phone. We're never going to have the most comfortable car. We're never going to have the best house. We're never going to have the perfect kid. So why bow to that? For us, for me, for this church, we will always refer to what the Bible says. Why? Because you don't need to hear from me. You don't need my wisdom. You don't need my insight. You need what the Bible says. Why? Because the Bible, the words, the scriptures are God himself. And you need God himself. You need more of him every day. Unless you're perfect, and again, love to meet you, you need the scriptures. Two examples of this. Romans chapter 9, verse 17, it says this. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Notice it doesn't say, for God said to Pharaoh. But that's how high the writers viewed the scripture. The scriptures say to Pharaoh. And in Galatians 3.8, in which Paul wrote, scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Nowhere else does it say anything about any book you have at home doing anything. How many of you have books at home? Kaler's? If you guys want to get a library card from the library of Kaler. Um, they have a lot of books. How many of your books, this is going to be amazing. How many of your books have done something this week? Go. Go, this could be a really cool day. Like, we can make the news. Anyone. I mean, all right. Uh, take away all the bad books. Tell me your favorite book. What did it do this week? Fell off the couch? Collected dust? Got coffee spilt on it? Or if you are a baby, got spit up, spit on it? Did any of your books do anything? There's got to be one. The Bible. How many of you saw your Bible do something this week? How many of you, let's do a show of hands. Did any of you read Psalm 19 at least once this week? Oh, come on, man. Yeah, I'm keeping it low, Ed, all right? <laughs> I'm keeping it low, brother. <laughs> Scripture foresaw. Now, I know your favorite book foresaw something. No, it didn't. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce, it didn't foresee, it announced. I know you've got a book at home that announced something this week. 
There's got to be one. There isn't. In Hebrews chapter 1, many of the Old Testament passages are quoted. Uh, they are actually addressed to God by the psalmist, and yet the writer to the Hebrews refers to them as the words of God. Do you see this? It's all throughout Scripture. This is something movies are made of, that you set a book down and then it does something. But it's not a movie. This is our life. This is so cool. So that's the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you're new to church, you're, you're, you're new to the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament is just a nice way to clean up to say the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's it. So that's the Old Testament, New Testament. But what did Jesus believe? Because that's critical for us. In John chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus quoted, he knew his Bible as well, he quotes Psalm 82, 6. And based on his teaching upon a phrase, he said, I said you are God's. In other words, Jesus proclaimed that the words of this psalm were words of God, not of a psalmist. Psalm 82, verse 6. Similarly, Matthew 22, verses 31 through 32, he claimed the words of Exodus 3, 6, if you're taking notes. You can, you can link those two, Matthew 22, 31 through 32, and Exodus 3, 6. They were given to them by who? By God himself. And in Matthew chapter 22, verses 43 through 44, Jesus quoted from Psalm 110, verse 1. And he pointed out that, yes, David, the man, the slingshotter, David did write these words, but he wrote them in the spirit, meaning he was actually writing the words of God himself, not rogue on his own. Why is this important to look at Jesus? Why is this important to look at Jesus in the way that he viewed Scripture? Because to say that the Bible is the word of God and is therefore without error because the Bible itself makes this claim is seen by many as circular reasoning. Wrap your mind around that just for a moment. Many will make this claim. It's like saying that the prisoner must be innocent because the prisoner says he's innocent. That's what a lot of people will view as Scripture. Well, your only proof that Scripture is perfect and without error and, and has no ability to have error is because the Bible says that. That's circular reasoning according to those who are on the outside. And at first glance, that appears to be so. So many will ask, are we justified to appealing the Bible's own claim in settling this matter of authority and inerrancy? And the answer is a resounding yes. Of course it does. You see, we actually use self-authentication every single day. You do this, I do this. We do this every single day and it makes perfect sense. Whenever we say, I think, or I believe, or I dreamed, we are making a statement that no one else can verify. But it's true. Why? Because I verify it. If, if you're thinking something, I can't say you're not thinking it. You are. <laughs> but you can tell me the truth if, if I trust you. You can verify or decline that. If people were reliable, witnessing to oneself would always be enough, right? If people were reliable, we wouldn't need lawyers. Why do we need lawyers? Because we're a bunch of liars. We're a bunch of idiots. We're not reliable at all. So we need lawyers to stand up in court and speak for us. And then we pay them all kinds of money. In John chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, Jesus said that self-witness is normally insufficient. Did you know that? 
he said it himself, that normally a self-witness, most of the time, that's not sufficient. You need someone else. In fact, later when Jesus claimed in John chapter 8, verse 12, he said this, I am the light of the world. Now, someone could come up to him and go, no, you're not. Well, now where are we? Now we're in an argument. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Alan says, no, you're not. Sorry, not that you're arguing against Jesus, Alan. I just needed someone. And the Pharisees attempted to correct him by saying, here you are appearing as your own testament. Your testimony is not valid. You see what they're doing? They're trying to catch Jesus in his own words. You just said you can't be your own witness. Now you stand up and go, I'm the light of the world. That doesn't work. You're wrong. And they got him, they think. That's from John 8, 13. And in defense, the Lord showed that in his case, because he is the son of God, self-witness is reliable. Here's what he says in verse 14. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Let me bring you back to Psalm chapter 19. The instructions of the Lord are pretty good. Now, <laughs> says the instructions of the Lord are perfect. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy. The commandments of the Lord, they're right. The commands of the Lord, they are clear. They are pure. And Jesus testifies to it. He is his own self-witness. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. It is without failure. It is without error. In fact, I don't even have the ability to be with error. You see, self-witness is reliable where sin does not exist or interfere. So Jesus is the only one, not only the only one that could ever go to the cross because we need a, a perfect lamb of God, we need a, a perfect sacrifice to make things right, but he's the only one ever to walk the planet to self-witness. The only one. Because Jesus is God and therefore he's guiltless, a fact that was confirmed by his critics, not by his followers, but by his critics, that same chapter in verse 46, his words can be trusted. And in a similar manner, since the Bible is God's word, we must listen to its claims about itself. And the Bible says, my words are perfect. This is a big deal because how else can we be sure of God's anger against sin? How else can we be sure of God's love for sinners? How else can we be sure that God has a plan for his people? How else can we be sure that God loves everyone? If you're new here, God loves you. Can I say that over and over and over? God loves you. He cares about you. He's crazy about you. How can I make that claim? Because the Bible says so. See, if we start questioning the Bible, if we start questioning the errors or the potential for errors, everything we say just becomes uh, a matter of interpretation or at best, loose. At worst, watered down opinion. I can say God loves you, not out of my opinion. I believe that, it is my opinion, but that's not my foundation in saying it to you. I say it because the word of God says so. Jesus loves the little children. But the Bible tells me so. Like, let's not overcomplicate this. And this is nothing new. Hilary of Poitiers, a fourth century theologian and a bishop born in 315 AD, once claimed, only God is a fit witness to himself. Only God. You and I can witness, but people can walk away and go, eh, I don't agree. Nice shirt, Tim, 
but don't agree with your God. And they can do that. They can walk away from Tim. Only God is a fit witness to himself. And he did that. He did that very thing in a very short time as he walked this earth, as he lived his life, as he, as he experienced a death he didn't deserve, and he experienced a resurrection we don't deserve. That's what he did. You see this pagan-induced questioning of the infallibility of Scripture? This is nothing new. This is not a 2021 thing. This is not a cultural thing. This is absolutely nothing new. In fact, if you go all the way back to when the, the writings even began, they were questioned. In addition, the belief that the Bible is without error, that's not new either. Let's go back to Pope Clement of Rome in 35 AD. 35 AD, that is really close to after Jesus was crucified. He's in the first century, and look what he writes, this pope. He writes, look carefully into the scriptures, which are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. Observe that nothing of an unjust or counterfeit character is written in them. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because he's defending the gospel. He's defending the scriptures, that they're not just eloquent words put on paper. They are the living, active, breathing, correcting, training, uh, rebuking words of the Holy Spirit put on the paper. And those same words you hold in your lap right now. Irenaeus, a century later, Irenaeus concluded, the scriptures are indeed perfect since they were spoken by the word of God and his spirit. They are indeed perfect. The instructions of the Lord are perfect. Name something in your life that's perfect outside of your husband. I know that. Right, Polly? Yeah, I mean, he's perfect. <laughs> Name something in your life that's perfect, that will never let you down, that, that will never leave you stranded, that, that won't leave you guessing and wondering and, 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 and scared. There's nothing in your life. There's no person in your family there's no job, there, there's no bank account, there's no government official, there's nothing in your life that's perfect. And our world is so desperately looking for that thing that won't let me down, that will take care of my kids, that will breathe life into me, that will actually bring me joy that will stomp out the darkness and illuminate the light. That's what we're looking for. And this view, this words of Irenaeus, the scriptures are indeed perfect since they were first spoken by the word of God and his spirit. This was the view of the early church leaders. This is nothing new. And it has been the consistent view of evangelicals, Christ-following evangelicals from the ancient first century church to the 16th century Protestant reformers all across Europe, all the way up to today. This is why we often say what we do here is not a game. What we do here is life and death. What we do here matters. What's going on on the other side of that wall with our kids matters. Those kids are being loved. They are being taught the laws and the decrees of God himself. Not of the Pope. Not of whoever else he has working with him, but of God himself. And, and, and the ancient church, they didn't all use the words infallibility or inerrancy, but many of them expressed these concepts, and, and there is no doubt that they believed it, and so do we here at Rock Creek Church. And there is so much more we could say about this, but we're going to stop. And we're going to direct our attention to next week. 
And we're going to answer the question, so what? Does this matter? Is this just some high-level thinking of Scripture in the church that I'm like, yeah, whatever. Go eat 12 hot dogs. Or does it matter? Does any of this matter? Why should I care about this? And, and we're going to answer those incredible questions next week when we unpack deeper and further. So until then, I want to give you this encouragement. Read. Read your Bible. I beg you to read your Bible. These words are divinely inspired. There's nothing like it. Psalm 19, 7 and 8, it reminds us there is no error nor the possibility for error in any of its pages. It's perfect. Read your Bible this week. Read Psalm 19 every day. And I would encourage you, read it in a different version every day. If you don't have enough Bibles at home, you can go on blueletterbible.org. That is blueletterbible.org. You can read it in every language known to mankind and every different English version. But grab a different version and just sit on it and ask God, reveal something new. Reveal something new. This is six weeks of diving into this particular chapter. And then read other chapters. Rest in it. Let God speak to you through it. Make it your, your anchor and your foundation for this week. Why? Because you have no idea what's waiting for you. But God does. You can trust it. You can stake your life on it. And he will return your life back better than ever. That's all I have to say. Let's pray together. Lord, we hold a, a book that countless individuals have given their life to protect its writings and to give it to those who don't have it yet. There are, are countless martyrs that gave their life to distribute and speak these words. There are countless individuals that have spent and are spending time in a prison cell, even right now, because of this book. And I want to thank you that, that we hold a book that is without error and is not capable of error. As we go throughout our week, would you help Psalm 19 and surrounding chapters and books to bring us life, to speak truth to us, to give us hope, to give us encouragement, to give us strength so we can keep our eyes on you and live our life for the glory and the praise for the one. It's in Jesus' name we pray.